We give God praise again today for time together. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, the people of God, to gather together to worship Him uh, every time we gather as a local church. Uh, we just are reminded of that gathering of, that great gathering of the people of God uh, when they were brought out of Egypt. There you had the entirety of the people of Israel gathered together. And this, of course, is not the entirety of the people of God. Uh, there is the universal church. We are a local church, and we take that very seriously. But there is the universal church. And we recognize that this is a little picture of what we one day will be doing with all of God's people, those who came before Christ, who lived in the time of Christ, and those after Christ, all over the world from every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is a little picture, a little participation of that great future reality. And so we're so thankful. I hope you are to be here to gather as God's people. If you would, go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. Romans 9, 1 to 5. The title for the sermon today is The Apostles' Anguish. The Apostles' Anguish. And you'll see that up here on the screen. It really is quite strange moving from the end of chapter 8 to the beginning of chapter 9. If you're just reading through the Bible or reading through Romans sequentially, and you come to Romans 9, 1, 1 to 3, after reading that last chunk of Scripture that we have on the poster over here from Romans 8, you really do, it, it is disorienting. You really do feel a bit, a bit strange as you come to it. We go from the very top of the mountain down to the bottom of the valley. We move in one sentence from great exuberant joy to in the very next sentence, great sorrow. But here's the thing we need to consider is that we must pass through this valley of anguish at the beginning of chapter 9 in order to get to another mountain peak at the end of chapter 11. So what we get at the end of chapter 8 is quite a high point in Paul's letter to the Romans. But I think we would find an equally profound and exalted passage at the end of chapter 11. Let me read it to you, verses 32 to 36, and you can go there and read along with me if you'd like. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. 
These words at the end of chapter 11 are what Paul is working towards as he writes all of chapters 9 to 11. So chapter 9 through 11, this is a chunk, a distinct chunk in Paul's letter to the Romans. And so yes, we come down off of the mountain into a deep dark abyss at the beginning of chapter 9, but it is in order that or on the path to this great mountain peak passage that we just read at the end of chapter 11. And the focus of these three chapters, which we will be in for some time, is the relationship between Jews and Gentiles in God's redemptive plan. And specifically, what God is doing with Israel. Notice I didn't say what is going on with Israel, because as we see at the end of Romans 11, it is what God is doing with Israel. It is the sovereign God, the providential God, who is entirely in control as we read through these chapters. That's important to see. It's important to remember that God's ways, his inscrutable ways, his unfathomable, wise governance is what is always in the background of everything we read in chapters 9 through 11. So what is God doing with Israel, the ethnic descendants of Abraham. That's where Paul starts in chapter 9. Paul begins Romans 9 with a problem. That's where he starts. Israel or the Israelites have largely rejected the Messiah. This is a fact of history. Paul is looking around and this would be the case with his Roman readers and largely the Israelites, Israel has rejected the Messiah. The great majority do not believe in Christ. The great majority of Israel rejects Christ. To use Paul's language in verse 3, they are accursed and cut off from Christ. How can this be? What does this say about God? What does this say about God's faithfulness to his people. Will this persist? And what does this mean for the future? Why did this happen? Who is true Israel? How do Gentiles relate to Israel? These are just some of the big questions that occupy Paul's attention as he marches his way through chapters 9 through 11. And we got a little preview of this three-chapter discussion in the eight verses at the beginning of chapter 3, but it was, it was only that, a preview, barely a preview, a little trailer of where Paul is headed as he comes to these three great chapters, this significant chunk of Paul's most famous letter. But before we jump into the text this morning, I want to give you several reasons why these chapters are important. Or let me say it this way, several reasons why you shouldn't just check out during this section of Romans. You know, I've talked to some of you who have been uh, most excited about this chunk of Romans, who've been most intrigued and interested in this particular section. 
but others who see this really as uh, kind of not what they think of when they think of Romans. I mean, haven't we already covered the important parts? I mean, my goodness, we've talked about justification by faith, all of that condemnation, all of that sin that's just piled up at the very beginning of the epistle. And then the justification of God by faith, the righteousness of God gifted to us in Jesus Christ comes crashing into that condemnation, overshadows it, covers it over, And then we begin to see who we are in Christ, our identity in Christ, no longer in Adam, but in Christ. And we've been united to Christ in his death and resurrection. We, yes, have indwelling sin, but we are with Christ. We are in Christ. We are dead to the law. And then, of course, we are not condemned in Christ. The beginning of chapter 8 and going through that chapter, we're led by the Spirit. We are no longer in the flesh, but in the Spirit. We are assured in every way of future glory and of God's love. So, I mean, what more can you say? All the great things have already been said. Maybe that's your mindset and you would just think, man, can we just get through uh, these three chapters? Doesn't seem that important. Seems a bit academic. Uh, Maybe not so much relevant to me and to my life. Well, let me give you several reasons why you ought not to think that way about this three-chapter chunk of this letter. First, and most basically, Paul thought this discussion was important enough to spend three chapters on it in this letter. So at the very least, the apostle who has said all of these wondrous things to us about how we are saved in Christ thinks this is important. So at the very least, we ought to take notice of that. He thinks it's important, the one who has told us all of these other important things. This chunk of the letter, the content of this chunk, is integral to how Paul thinks about God's saving purposes, God's great purposes of salvation in Christ Jesus. Jesus that he's been uh, unpacking for us individually and applying to us, showing us what that means for our lives and our identity and our fight against sin and our future hope. Well, those purposes are greater than just us. And that's what these chapters are concerned with. Second, it helps us be better readers of the entire Bible. You know, it, it is quite common to just come to the Bible for little devotional bits. Uh, There was a a book I saw recently that basically uh, it was a a devotional for for teenage girls and it was, uh, it came through on an email I get and it basically was uh, something along the lines of little pick-me-ups, little daily pick-me-ups, right, (laughs) something like that. So maybe that's how you've thought about the Christian life. You just need these little boosters, these little pick-me-ups. And you get that along with your espresso or whatever, and that's your day. I mean, that's that's Christianity, is this series of pick-me-ups. You come to the Bible for little bits, little nuggets of pick-me-ups that will help you get through your day and practically live out what you think is the Christian life. 
A passage like this shatters that very superficial understanding of Christianity. And what it does is it helps us to understand the theology, the thrust, the storyline of the entirety of the Bible. Going all the way back from in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth to come Lord Jesus to the very end of the Bible in Revelation. Uh, chapters 9 to 11 of Romans have an unlocking effect, if you will. An unlocking effect for us as we read our Bibles. So if you want to come become a better Bible reader, this is a key place. Third, it leads us by the hand to the doxology at the end of Romans 11. Everything in these three chapters, uh, it's like a father coming alongside and grabbing his child's hand and leading him or her to the place where he wants them to go. That's what's going on here. Paul is leading us to the doxology that we just read, that worshipful passage we just read at the end of Romans 11 that praises God for what? for his wisdom and his mercy. That's what we find at the end of Romans 11 is this great delighting in and great celebrating of God's wisdom, his inscrutable ways, and his mercy to all. That is what ends this section. And so that's what we are headed towards. We could say it this way, that Chapters 9 through 11 of Romans open the door to a deeper, more informed worship of God. So if you're a Christian, you exist for the praise of God. I remember uh, the book by John Piper, Let the Nations Be Glad. I read that in seminary. It's a book about missions. But one of the things that was most striking to me about that book is that God's will, God's desire is to make worshipers. That is God's will. God delights in his own glory, and he has made us for his glory, and he saves us for his praise. And so, worship is the primary and overarching and foundational delight of all Christians. It is what we will do forever. It is what infuses life into every act, every thought that we do in this life or think in this life. So it should cause us to perk up our ears when we see that Romans 9 through 11 ends in this great worship of God. We are being led there, which means that an understanding of Romans 9 through 11, as I said before, gives us a more informed worship of our God. That alone should motivate us. Fourth, and I'm almost done. I only have two more. Fourth, it protects us from the Gentile pride that Paul attacks in Romans 11. It is amazing to me how interpreters throughout the history of the church have ignored the applicational thrust of this passage. Well, where, where does Paul get to in application as he's going through Romans 9 through 11? Hey, 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 you Gentiles, remember, you're not natural branches. You've been grafted in. 
So restrain your pride. That's the great big overarching application of Romans 9 through 11. It's clear as day. This great implication and application, I think, has been ignored by many interpreters. As Gentiles, we are unnatural branches that have been grafted in. Humility, humility, that's the effect it should have. And finally, chapters 9 through 11 of Romans give credence to the end of Romans 8. This is the most immediately pressing, I think, for us. It gives credence to the end of Romans 8. Let me say it this way. How can we be safe? Listen to this, Christian. This is one of the ways it is so important for you to read these chapters and to understand these chapters. How can we be safe in God's hands as we looked at the last two weeks if God has dropped his covenant people Israel? Whoa, how in the world can we be said to have everything we read on that poster over there and be said to be safe in God's hands? Nothing, height, depth, things present, things to come. Nothing could ever remove us, not even our own will, no created thing. When we are faithless, as Jared said earlier, he is faithful. But if he's dropped Israel, his covenant people, how so? That's the logic that links together the end of Romans 8 with the beginning of Romans 9. So those aren't sermon points. Those are just preliminary thoughts. If you would go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. We only have five verses to read today. The reason I go through all of that is just to help us understand that Uh, there there may not be immediate applications for us as we go through the different chunks of 9 through 11. A lot of it is us understanding what God's purposes are. You know, when you come to Romans 12, you get these very obvious applications that just come right off of the page. But my hope is that as we're going through Romans 9 through 11, that you'll refer back to everything I just said and that you'll let those implications, those applications bear in on us as we study this chunk of the epistle. So Romans 9, verses 1 to 5. This is the word of God. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's go to God in prayer and ask that he would give us clarity as we go through 
these, uh, these verses and that this would be a, a basic foundation for us as we're beginning to work through the various sections of this chunk of the epistle. So let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to be gathered together as believers. Lord, we take for granted often, I know I do, the, the great privilege that it is to gather with Christians, with fellow believers, and particularly within the context of a local church on uh, the Lord's Day in, in corporate worship. God, this is a, a special time, and we give you thanks for it. Father, we give you thanks that we are together, but even more, we give you thanks that we are together singing your praises, together praying to you, as Walt made so clear earlier, corporately, together as one, that we are hearing your word read and preached and we are meditating upon it together, that we are participating in the Lord's Supper together, confessing our faith together and receiving a benediction together. Father, we, we thank you for this gift. We ask this morning that your word would be clearly taught. Father, that you would help us all to receive your word as it is here presented by the apostle. Father, we pray that our hearts and minds as we go through this passage would be open to receive what it is that you are saying. Father, if we become convinced by the words of the apostle of something different than we have held, Lord, uh, all of us, including all of us, Lord, that we would be malleable, that we would be intellectually malleable, that we would, uh, we would be adaptable to the work of your spirit using your word to refine our understanding of what you have given us in your word and what you have done and are doing in the history of redemption. God, we pray that you would make us humble, that you would make us teachable, all of us, and we pray for your mercy now as we come to these five verses. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title for this sermon is The Apostles' Anguish, and the text gives us two major things to consider, and you'll find those up on the screen here. This is what will occupy our attention today. Two things to consider, uh, the apostles' pain and the apostles' people, his pain and his people. That's really where he goes uh, in these five verses. And what we find is verse 6 is really the crux of this, uh, of this section. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. And he'll go on to talk about uh, what it means to be Israel, what it means to be a descendant of Israel. But that, that sentence there in verse 6 is really what we're moving towards. And then as we go through chapter 9 and following, that's what we're going to be moving from. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. So keep that sentence very much in view as we go through these three chapters. So the first thing we're going to look at is his pain, Paul's pain. Look with me again at verses 1 to 3. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my, in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. 
sorrow or grief and anguish or mental pain. These words are the centerpiece of this section. The apostle is deeply troubled. And this is interesting for someone who says, be anxious for nothing. I think we would say that what Paul means by be anxious for nothing probably uh, is something different from what he is experiencing here. This is a, this is a heartfelt, deep sorrow over the unbelief of Israel. The apostle is deeply troubled. His heart is deeply moved by Israel's large-scale rejection of the Christ. And in these verses, Paul explains his anguish or his pain from two angles. And so this is what we're going to look at under this point, his pain. Two angles, the sincerity and the gravity. The sincerity of his pain and the gravity of it. So first, the sincerity. He begins by saying, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience or that inner faculty that approves or disapproves within us, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Wow, this is, this is incredible language. What we have here is a carefully chosen pile of words. I mean, notice how emphatic and how thorough Paul is in saying what he says here. A pile of words to convince his readers that he is telling the truth. Trust this. Know this. Be assured of this. He's not just pretending to care. We all know what that feels like in our pretense to care our hypocrisy and pretense. We, we've all been there. We've all done that. That's not what Paul is doing. He's not just being a bit sentimental, a, a, teary, a teary eye for the moment. That's not it. He's not just using words for rhetorical effect. He really means what he's about to say. Paul is sincere. And he here, in this short space, goes to great lengths in order to make that clear and convincing to his readers. This reminds us of what he tells his Roman readers at the beginning of the letter. This is the same tone that Paul used in chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Just as Paul wanted them, his readers, to have no doubt about his pastoral care and longing to be with them, so too does he want them to know with absolute certainty that his heart is grieved by Jewish un belief. Notice all of the ways he makes this clear. Let's dissect this just for a moment to make the point clear. He says it both positively and negatively. He says, I am speaking the truth. I am not lying. 
And the Greek word for truth appears at the very beginning of the sentence for emphasis. When you see that, it tells you this is the emphasis, this is the very first thing, the very first idea that the apostle wants his readers to see. And so when you come out of chapter 8, of course there weren't chapters back then, but when you come out of the content of chapter 8 and you enter into chapter 9 verse 1, the very first word is truth, I speak. Truth, I speak. He also says it three times. I am speaking the truth. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness. And surprisingly, it's amazing here, he brings forward Christ and the Holy Spirit as witnesses. And he may have Deuteronomy in the background here where uh, the law called for two or more witnesses uh, in, in, uh, under a judge, when, it, when a case was being heard by a judge, two or more witnesses were needed. And here, Paul is calling forward Christ and the Holy Spirit to act as witnesses to his sincerity. Paul ensures his readers that he is honestly conveying the truth of his heart in union with Christ and governed by the Spirit. He is saying this cognizant of his union with Christ and being governed by the Spirit, being in the Spirit, he speaks this. This is like saying, God, strike me dead if I'm lying. He's telling the truth. So we see the sincerity. Secondly, we see the gravity. So what is Paul sincerely saying? He spends so much time telling us that what he's about to say is not a lie, but what is he actually saying? He says that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart and could wish that he himself were accursed and cut off from Christ on behalf of unbelieving Israel. This is how much this mattered to Paul. This is how much this grieved his heart. Paul is out ministering to Corinthians and Ephesians and Romans, Thessalonians, Philippians. He's out ministering to these various people who are Greeks and Gentiles. And of course, Paul will go and he'll preach in the synagogue and he has various Jews that he interacts with. But largely, Paul is ministering to all of these Gentiles. And what Paul is telling us is that though he is full of joy and great delight in God as he sees, uh, for example, the Thessalonians turn from idols to the living God, as he hears of the Romans' faith, that is talked about throughout the world, or the Colossians who received the word of truth with great hope. He delights in all of that, and yet as he's ministering to all of these unnatural branches, his heart is grieving over the unbelief of the natural branches. Great pain, great anguish. Paul's pain is described here as great, ongoing, and deep. We need to descend with Paul 
here. We can't just gloss over this. We need to descend with Paul in in order to understand the significance of this issue and the gravity that it had for the apostolic ministry. And if it grieved Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, certainly it also grieved John and Peter and the others. Great, ongoing, and deep pain. He does not merely have sorrow, but great sorrow. And his anguish is not momentary, but unceasing. Paul carries this mental pain around with him everywhere he goes. As though it were not enough that he has all of the trials and struggles that we read about last week in 2 Corinthians 11. All those beatings, being stoned, and his care for the churches, these false apostles coming into the churches, these Judaizers coming into the churches, these these false teachers and ascetics, like in Colossians, those who would take away from Christ and his saving work. Paul is greatly grieved. And this anguish is deep in that it is at the very core of his being. It is said here to be in his heart. And the depth of it can be seen by his statement that he would be willing to give himself up for his people. This This is so striking. This language is just hard to even read. That he would be willing to give himself up to be accursed and cut off from Christ. The one he has just said that there is no condemnation in Christ and only in Christ. He's just said that the love of God, we cannot be separated from the love of God. Where? In Christ Jesus our Lord. Nowhere else in Christ. And now he's saying that he could wish that he were cut off from Christ, accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of his brethren, his kinsmen according to the flesh. Now, Paul was well aware that that was impossible. There was no way he could act as a substitute for his people. He's a sinner like them. Only Christ is the mediator between God and man. Only Christ is the perfect substitute, the propitiation for our sins. Paul could not do that. And we know, of course, from Romans 8 at the very end that nothing could separate Paul from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So he could not be unsaved on behalf of his people. Paul was well aware that what he was saying was impossible, but it shows his heart. This is the depth of his care, the depth of his concern, the depth of his grief and his anguish. So let me say this, at the very least, Whatever our theology, however we understand and define Israel, we should at least respect and understand the great grief that the rejection of Israel, of their Christ, caused and ought to cause those who follow Christ. It shows Paul's heart. It is much like the heart of Moses in Exodus 32, 32. And maybe you remember reading this Moses says, but now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. 
take me out of the book of life. He intercedes on behalf of the people and, and puts his own soul, his own salvation, his own eternal life and destiny there in the balance on behalf of the people for whom he intercedes. That's what Moses does when all of Israel almost, not all of Israel, but largely rejected God in, at Sinai. They, they worship the golden calf. And now here we are again. They've rejected God's Christ. They've rejected God incarnate. And just as Moses said what he said, we have Paul here saying something very similar. It's hard to believe that Paul would not have had this in view as he wrote these words. But most importantly, we need to see that this is a Christ-like heart. It is a Moses-like heart, but more importantly, this is a Christ-like heart that we are getting a window into on Paul. It's a Christ-like heart, a heart of self-giving love. And let me just say this for us by way of implication. This is a deep concern for the lost. It was very convicting to me to consider what Paul has to say here, but it certainly convicts us of our disregard and superficial sentiment when it comes to the lost. So I just want to encourage us as a church. I think that one of the weaknesses of our church and one of the weaknesses of my own heart as one of the elders of this local church is evangelism, is being serious about seeing the progress of the gospel go out to sinners and to see sinners come face to face with the reality of Jesus Christ and him crucified and to grieve that there are lost people in the world, to grieve that there are lost people who live on this road, who live in our neighborhoods, who live in our, in our homes, to grieve and to mourn over that and to have the heart that we read here of Paul, but even more the heart of Christ, that self-giving, grieving love for sinners who do not know God. I think it also helps us to see our selfishness. Now, how often do we ever reach these kind of depths for anybody? I mean, think about that. How often do we ever go down into the pit like this for another human being? Oh, we're just consumed with self. We just fulfill self. We pamper self. We make self comfortable. We plan for self. We have goals for self. But how often do we ever have this kind of inner turmoil and anguish over another human being? And consider another human being that is not right there in our home. Of course, we might think of our spouse or our children. But what about those we just don't even know? Paul didn't know all of those Israelites for whom he grieved. He grieved. This really does, I think, come crashing into neglect of evangelism and selfishness. And so let's let it hit us 
Let's let it impact us. Let's let this impact our church. And let's pray to God that he would grant us by his grace to have a greater heart for lost people, for sinners, and to actually do something about it as leaders in the church and as individual Christians. But Paul's concern here, I have to say, is not for the lost in general. I think we can draw out that implication from what he has to say about the lost. But specifically here, Paul's concern is not merely for lost people in general, but for the lost among his people, his own people, his brothers, his kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul is a Jew. Yes, he's the apostle to the Gentiles. Yes, the Jews of his day hated him, turned him over to the Romans, wanted him to suffer. The Jews attacked him in many ways, but Paul himself is a Jew. He is an Israelite, a descendant of Jacob's son, Benjamin. So if you trace his lineage back, you keep going, you keep going, you keep going, eventually you're gonna get to Benjamin, that younger brother of Joseph that we read about at the end of Genesis. And Paul describes his lineage in Philippians 3, 5, or his ancestry. He describes that in Philippians 3, 5. He is a Hebrew of Hebrews, a descendant of Benjamin. And Paul is here expressing his deep grief over the unbelief of his fellow Jews. And the reason he uses the language of accursed and cut off from Christ is because that is exactly what has happened to so many of his fellow Jews. What is the spiritual condition of the Jews in Paul's day who have rejected Christ? Uh, here's the answer. They are accursed and cut off from Christ. Paul puts himself as a substitute in their place. The implication, the obvious inference rather, is that that's their state. Any Jew who dies apart from Christ dies accursed, devoted to destruction. So the idea that, yes, Israel is God's people and, and, and the idea that Jews are under some sort of other plan and that a Jew who dies, who maybe an Orthodox Jew who, who keeps, uh, the, tries to keep the Mosaic law, who stands at the wailing wall, who orders his life and his family's life around Torah and around the Jewish calendar, the idea that that person may make it into heaven is utterly false. Anyone who dies apart from Christ dies in their sins. Accursed, devoted to destruction. That's what that word entails. Cut off from the Savior, their very own Messiah. You see why the apostle would be grieved. And here's the thing. If those Jews could have been saved by their sincere law keeping, why in the world would Paul say this? He's grieved because they're going to hell. He's grieved because they're gonna die in their sins and face the judgment of God. Tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. That's what they face. And this leads him to a description of who his people are. They are not merely his people, and I've put the point as his people, 
because he describes them that way at the end of verse 3. But they are not merely Paul's people. They are God's people. And that, what, that is what makes their unbelief all the more grievous. And so now we go to our second point, his people. So hope, hopefully we've seen the depth of Paul's pain the gravity of it, the sincerity of it. Hopefully we've entered into that. We have felt that with the apostle. We've seen how important this is to the apostle's heart. Now we need to look at how he describes his people. So look with me at verses four to five. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Who are these people? Who are they? Who are Paul's people? Paul calls them Israelites here. They are the descendants of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And it's great to be looking at Romans after we spent so much time in Genesis. And so if you recall there, there's that story in Genesis 32 where uh, Jacob wrestles with the Lord. And his name is changed to Israel. He strives with God. And Paul describes them here in that way, they are Israelites, they are descendants of Jacob, which means that you cannot say that word, Israelites, without immediately going all the way back to Jacob and to just immediately remember all the faithfulness of God to Jacob, as undeserving as Jacob was, as deviant and deceitful as Jacob was, God was faithful to him. So at the very beginning, you, you already have so much content packed into that word, Israelites, before you go even further. They are Israelites. And Paul describes them here in three ways. And this is where we're gonna finish up this morning. He describes them in three ways. They are first recipients, second descendants, and third relatives. They are recipients, descendants, and relatives. So let's look at each of those. And keep in mind, let me just say this briefly. This is why Paul is so grieved. Yes, he has a natural affinity for his own people. Yes, he has a natural affinity for lost people or a natural heart for them, as we all should. And he has a natural affinity for his people, as we all should. But Paul's anguish over Jewish unbelief has a lot to do with who these people are in relation to God. That is really the, the, the biggest part of Paul's angst, Paul's grief over all of this, his sorrow over all of this, is not merely the fact that, oh man, these are my relatives. These are my people. No, that, that's, a, that's a part of it. But even more, even weightier than that, these are God's people. The God I've just been describing in these eight chapters. The God who's done this amazing work of salvation. The God whose love is so infinite. These are his people. So first, they are recipients. Paul starts by saying 
To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. What a list this is. And I don't know about you, but as I read this list, I just get all these pictures. I've always loved the Old Testament. Since I was a kid, I had a great uh, teacher. When I was four to six years old, I can remember he, it just, by the way, reminds us that teachers have such an impact on the kids in our church. You know, you, you're having a hard week, you're preparing the lesson, and you think, I'll just wing it. Just know this, you are having an incredible impact on those little hearts and minds. And so that, that period of time for me, four to six years old, had a, we had a, a teacher who taught us these stories of the Old Testament. And so I've got all this packed into my brain. Really, that's where my mind goes, the things I learned then. All these pictures just come to my mind as I read these words. They are, the Israelites, they are the historical and natural recipients of all all of these divine blessings, these gifts from God, this list that I just read, they were given to a certain people. These are not just vague things God does. Sometimes we talk about God in that way. These, these things were specifically given to a specific people. These six blessings can really be summed up with Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse six. This is an all-encompassing description of Israel. And I'm talking about Israel as gathered in the wilderness. These are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob gathered in the wilderness listening to Moses. Deuteronomy 7, 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So that's a summary statement for this laundry list of blessings that God has given them, that they are recipients of. And because they were God's chosen people, they had adoption as his son. That's the first item in the list, Exodus 4.22. Israel is my firstborn son. The nation was characterized as God's son. God cared for his son. Why did God strike the firstborn son of the Egyptians? Because they were holding his son in captivity. He struck the firstborn son that they might release his firstborn son. Israel, collectively the son of God. They had God's glory his presence in the tabernacle and temple. They saw things that will boggle our minds. They, they saw God's glory fill the tabernacle. I, I can't even imagine what that looked like. They saw his splendor. They saw him go before them, a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. God's glory was with them. His presence was with them. Leviticus 16, 2, and the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. Listen to this. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. God made his home in the tabernacle and temple among his people. His presence is his glory. His glory was with this people. 
The covenants also belong to Israel. Those with Abraham, Moses, and David, as well as the new covenant described by the Hebrew prophets. Have you ever noticed how the description of the new covenant that we quickly and we should appropriate in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 37, have you ever noticed the Israel language, the Judah language? That covenant was given to Israel. Abraham, Moses, David, the new covenant. They had the law, the temple worship and sacrificial system and all of God's promises going back to Genesis chapter 12, verses one to three. And we saw this as we were going through Genesis, uh, through the book of Genesis, we saw once God came to Abraham, he constantly re, he reinstated, reestablished, he reiterated, different ways you could say that, his promises and his covenant faithfulness to Abraham over and over and over again. So you may have gotten the impression as we're going through Genesis, this is so repetitive. He's saying the same thing over and over and over again. And then, and then come, Isaac comes on the scene and then God says the same thing really over and over and over again to Isaac. And then Jacob comes on the scene. God says the same thing over and over and over again to Jacob. The point is being made abundantly clear God is giving them the covenant promises. Chapter 12, verses one to three of Genesis. Now the Lord said to Abraham, or Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That really encapsulates all those reiterations that we find throughout the book of Genesis. The promises, these great, and throughout the Old Testament, these great promises made by God. And of course, we have the promise made to David that one of his descendants would be on his throne forever. So first, they are recipients. We're talking about his people. First, they're recipients. Secondly, they are descendants. Paul says, to them belong the patriarchs. Now later, in Romans 11, I can remember some fellow students in Edinburgh. We used to sit and debate these sorts of things all the time. You know, Romans 9 through 11 and Israel and the place of Israel and is the church Israel? And uh, what does it mean that Christ is true Israel? What does it mean that we've been grafted into Israel? And what does Paul mean when he talks about the Israel of God in Galatians? All these different questions that come up. But it always struck me, particularly as I was meditating my way through the end of Romans 11, it always struck me how Paul will speak of the ethnic offspring of Abraham. This, this stuck with me. It stayed with me. It continues to be central to my understanding of what Paul's teaching in these chapters. He says this at the end of Romans 11, as regards the gospel, they, unbelieving Israel, that is. He didn't say that. That was me adding that. They are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved. They are beloved. They are beloved. Enemies of the gospel. Enemies of the church. Killing Christians. And yet, they are beloved as regards election. Why? For the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That's just powerful language for helping us understand. 
the relationship between the patriarchs and ethnic Israel, though largely unbelieving. Paul and all of his kinsmen, according to the flesh, are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We've studied those stories, promise, faithfulness, protection, prosperity, over and over and over again. The Israelites in Paul's day are the living, breathing descendants of these patriarchs. It is as though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are standing there. These are the living, breathing instances there in the moment of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Thirdly, they are relatives. As we close this morning, we need to see where Paul reaches his climax. They are relatives. Relatives according to the flesh of the Christ. More than just from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are relatives of the Christ, the seed of Abraham. Paul says, from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. This is the most important aspect of Jewish identity. They are relatives of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are not only the kinsmen according to the flesh of Paul, they are the kinsmen according to the flesh of Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the promised seed and king. And as he does in Titus 2.13 and other places, here Paul gives a clear statement of Christ's deity who is God over all, blessed forever, or who is over all, God blessed forever. And there has been some dispute among commentators as to whether the period should come after uh, Christ being mentioned, and then there's this doxology at the end, God blessed forever. But the, the way that this is worded does not suggest, in line with other doxologies throughout, that that is the way we are to punctuate or read this. Rather, we are to read it as referring to Christ, that Christ is God over all, blessed forever, or who is over all, God blessed forever. Christ is being called God here. Titus 2.13, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, the Israelites are relatives of the redeeming and reigning God-man, the incarnate Lord of all. Christ is the greatest gift to the Jewish people. And Paul is there in the midst of his agony, in the midst of his anguish and his sorrow. He, he ends there. They've been given all these things by God and they come from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they are relatives of Christ. From them comes the Christ, the incarnate God, the, the very soul and flesh of Christ, of God incarnate. Jesus Christ is a Jewish man. And Christ himself was the greatest gift to the Jewish people. I want to end this morning with two verses or two quotes from the birth narratives of Jesus in Luke. Because it's quite telling. You know, we read through passages sometimes so quickly and we apply them so quickly to ourselves. But I want you to see what Mary and what Zechariah have to say when Jesus is, is conceived and when Jesus is on his way to be born. All that has been revealed to Zechariah that his son would be the forerunner of the Christ. All that has been revealed to Mary. She is going to conceive and give birth to the Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
This is what they say. Concerning God, Mary says, he has helped his servant Israel. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Luke 1, 68 to 69, this is Zechariah. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation. Here it is. For us. For us. In the house of his servant, David. So as we consider Christ being the Messiah of Israel, as we consider Paul's great anguish over the unbelief of his people, as we move towards the end of Romans 11 with this great doxology of God's wisdom and his purposes in bringing in Gentiles and provoking Israel to jealousy and so forth, as we consider the irrevocable promises that God has made to the patriarchs and that still stand even with corporate unbelieving Israel in the time of Paul and still stand today as we consider all of that. The hope is that we would begin to understand more how the Bible fits together and that we would humble ourselves under God's revelation of his saving purposes through Christ, the Jewish Messiah, and the light of the nations, the one who is over all, both Jew and and Gentile. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless this time as we come to the Lord's Supper and that he would be with us as we go to the remainder of this service and into this following week. Father, we thank you for the scriptures that you have put before us today. We thank you for your great faithfulness to your people, Israel, to the ethnic Israelites to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who, who are said to be enemies of the gospel, enemies of Christians, and even enemies of God in that they do not know Christ, and yet at the same time are called beloved of God for the sake of their forefathers. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness to the people of Israel, to the nation of Israel. We thank you that you will demonstrate your faithfulness into the future and that we will see great things. Humankind will see great things with regard to your faithfulness to Israel. And God, we thank you that this same faithfulness is ours in Jesus Christ, that you will not, not keep your promises. You will not prove unfaithful. You will not be faithless. But where we are faithless, where Israel was faithless, you are and will be faithful. We give you praise, God, for who you are. And we ask now that you would bless us as we enter into this new covenant meal together as a local church, that you would bless this time, that we would commune with one another and commune with Christ as we remember his death, burial, and resurrection to forgive our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.